You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. I'm here with Erica Komisar, who is a psychoanalyst and also a contributing editor at the Institute for Family Studies and journalist, author, particularly of these two books, this one, which came out a couple of years ago called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, and the second book called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. Welcome, Erica. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, these two books are connected, and perhaps your third book will be about adults, right? Because, you know, I think there are a lot of people who would say that we have some mental health problems that are fairly pronounced in adolescents, but also in adults, and that we don't really quite have a good idea of where they're coming from or why they're there. And I think you make a fairly compelling case that they are rooted in childhood development, right? Rooted in the ways in which children come into this earth and experience their first couple of years. And what that means, of course, is that, you know, parents and particularly mothers can play a huge role and have a huge impact on the mental health, in particular, the resiliency and emotional state of their offspring. So as a practitioner, you have over the years spent a lot of time with patients and you have to do a whole bunch of research in order to practice well. This seems like a message that in some ways is obvious, but it's also a message that requires repetition, I guess. I mean, why is that we as a society are underestimate the importance of the early childhood experience? Well, as they say, denial is more than just a river in Egypt. (laughs) And so I think as human beings, we have a great deal of denial. It helps us to get along and function and forget and avoid painful feelings and avoid responsibility. (laughs) So yeah, I would say denial is one of the most powerful human defenses. And that's not an accusation. That's just as a psychoanalyst, that is just a fact. And so as you say, we need to be reminded. I mean, do I write these books because I invented this idea? No. It's just that we need this idea repeated as many times as we can hear it in books, through experts, in research. You know, there was a huge Kaiser Permanente study about adversity, and it was thousands of people. You know, Kaiser is a huge system. Thousands of people were surveyed to connect early childhood adversity to mental illness and physical illness, too heart disease, you know, cancer, all kinds of things. But, you know, why do we need Kaiser Permanente to do like, and even after that, we still are going, oh my God, you know, this woman's written a book and can you believe she tied early childhood adversity? So again, it isn't an accusation. It's just, if you're asking, you know, I think it's hard for human beings to take responsibility for all of their actions. And yet it's a very important thing. Self-awareness is sort of the cornerstone of mental health, right? And physical health. If we're not aware that we're doing harm to ourselves, we end up sick. If we're not aware we're doing harm to our children, they end up sick. Yeah. I teach a course on the workplace and we veer into topics around happiness. 
And I talk a lot about the Whitehall studies, right? And so, you know, the Whitehall studies are all about how the workplace and how one's position in society affects one's mental health. But when you dig into the literature, you discover that it's not just what you experience as an adult, but that these differences in one's capacity to deal with stressful events is impacted by where you grew up, the socioeconomic status of where, you know, your early childhood, even things like whether or not your parents owned a home. And I think that while we, we emphasize the socioeconomic aspects of it, you know, those things are correlated with the parental environment, right? And so maybe, you know, the parental environment is orthogonal in some sense to the socioeconomic status. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what it means to make the world more child-centric. You know, I think we, we think in terms of trade-offs. Does making the world more child-centric require that we make it less adult-centric? Does it require that we give something up as adults in favor of our children? Well, can I just step back from what you said and just add a little bit of information that I think people would be helpful to people, and then I'll answer that question. There is no gene for mental illness. There's some genetic correlation to schizophrenia, but otherwise there's no gene for mental illness. And people think there is. So people think, my child is ill or I'm ill. It's because of who I was born this way. <laughs> and it's the, no, the answer is no, there is no gene for mental illness. There is a gene for sensitivity to stress. It's called the short allele on the serotonin receptor. It's been found. It means that there's certain people that are born who are more sensitive to environmental stress. Okay, there's no gene for mental illness. So that means that this little small piece, which is our sensitivity to stress, is the only genetic piece. So we're not born this way. It happens to us along the way. So that's the first thing. And that's easy because there's no gene for it. Okay. And to answer your question, yes, we need to sacrifice. And we don't like sacrificing because we've been told now that we are the most important thing as adults and everything revolves around us and we can do whatever the hell we want to do and nobody else matters. It comes out of, it was sort of post-World War II. Would people sacrifice so much? Think about World War II, World War I and World War II. You know, people sacrifice so much. They sacrifice their children. They sacrifice their lives. And then the 60s come and the message is the post-war, you know, don't listen to the government. You shouldn't have to sacrifice your life, whatever. But the message was me, 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 me. We call it the me generation. It's all about me. And I can be as narcissistic as I want to be, and that's good. And the truth is that there is such a thing as healthy narcissism, and there's unhealthy narcissism. And th that wasn't distinguished. That, of course, it's important to take care of yourself. Of course, it's important to have some of your needs met, but that we didn't have to sacrifice anything for relationships, for children. No, it was all about us. And so that is the Kool-Aid that people have been drinking for the last 60 years. And that's poisonous Kool-Aid because you cannot raise children if you put yourself first. You shouldn't have children. I think Penelope Leach before me, again, I didn't invent this stuff. I'm just a messenger, right? So Penelope Leach, who was famous developmental 
sort of psychologist therapist who wrote books about, you know, child development well before me, English. She said, anybody can have a child, but don't have them unless you want to care for them. That's basically my message again, you know. Having children, I shouldn't say that because some people have trouble having children with fertility issues, but having children is the easy part. Caring for them requires the sacrifice. And we cannot raise healthy children if we're not willing to sacrifice. Well, I thought I interpreted your book a little bit differently. I thought you were saying something to the effect that it's something of a false trade-off in that, you know, we have been acculturated to the idea that child rearing is not a fulfilling occupation and that the culture is telling us that the only real fulfilling occupation is one that is outside of the household and that we can look at it in a slightly different way and see that this is actually very meaningful work, right? That's how I understood. So I understood you to be saying that there's less, it's not as much of a trade-off as we might think. Well, sacrifice is fulfilling. There's something fulfilling in giving to others. The emptiness, you'd say the spiritual void of our time, is that we have all bought into this idea that narcissism is best. And it isn't, because in the end, it doesn't feel good in the long run. You know, Aristotle's deathbed question. You know Aristotle's deathbed question. When you're lying on your deathbed, are you going to be looking around and wishing you had worked harder, made more money, and had more material stuff? Or are you going to be looking around at the people who are sitting around your bed and either loving you or the absence of those people loving you is obvious to you? And so what we're not thinking about is giving to others feels good. When I have a patient who's very depressed, the first thing I'll say to them is, you've got to find ways to give to others. You've got to go volunteer. You've got to get out of your narcissism. And you've got to find ways to find joy in connection. So it is Kool-Aid, and it's not the real thing when we're told that just going to work and working hard, and I think there's a temporary kind of almost media gratification from going to work and getting money and having people see us as successful. But in the end, it's not the sustainable. I guess that's a word we use today. It's not sustainable. It leaves a spiritual voice. Giving to children is fulfilling. So I was wondering if you could dig into attachment theory. So it seems at the heart of both books is this notion of attachment theory, right, which was developed years ago by Bowlby. There's also, I think, a strong, you know, Freudian streak in your work, right? And I had a couple of recent conversations about kind of the rise and fall of psychoanalysis, right? And how at some point in psychiatry, life history became less important. And we're starting to try and bring it back. So I was wondering if you could talk about attachment theory. And, you know, it's sort of come and gone. I mean, there was a point in time where, say, Bruno Betelheim had this refrigerator mom theory, and that was seen as very distasteful and not warranted by the evidence. But I think when that got discarded, it was sort of the the baby got tossed with the bathwater, right? So tell us more about attachment theory. Well, first, let me say that psychoanalysts and attachment theorists are not necessarily on the same page. So I think that's a confusing, that's easily misunderstood. You know, I'm a psychoanalyst who actually, how should I say, believes also in attachment theory. And there are a bunch of us that do. But there's a lot of psychoanalysts who split with attachment theorists because psychoanalysts believe it, many psychoanalysts believe most of it's internal. 
And attachment theorists are more like Anna Freud, who was Freud's daughter, who believed that she was a social worker, like I'm a social worker. So I'm a social worker psychoanalyst who believed that the environment plays a great role in the foundation of the personality of a person, right? But you can have psychoanalysts. So there was a split in psychoanalysis between Melanie Klein and Anna Freud. When Freud died, Melanie Klein was a protege of Freud, and she believed in the internal life and the fantasy life. Anna Freud still believed in the real, you know, real relationships, parenting. She taught parenting skills to people. And so there is a split. I just want to make that clear. So not all psychoanalysts buy into it, you know, so much of attachment theory. Attachment theory is founded on the idea that in the first three years of life, children develop a sense of emotional security from contact with their primary caregiver. We call that person their primary attachment object, usually their mother, who isn't just there in the first six weeks to make them feel bonded, but is there throughout that first three years so that child can practice what we call emotional refueling, meaning exploring the world and taking risks, but coming back to get a snuggle and a hug and some sort of security to go back out in the world and explore. So in the first year, let's say, that first year of a child's life, it's mostly just developing the foundation of, I'm here, you can trust that I'm here for you. I will help you from moment to moment when you are in distress. I will keep you safe and I will keep the stress away as much as I can. That's the first year. Then the next two years of that three-year period are the practicing, right? Okay, now you feel sort of a little bit secure. Now maybe you can toddle away and play with that toy and look back at me and see me and come back and get a snuggle and feel secure and go back out. So this is something that's misunderstood. Again, there's a lot of attachment research to say that this is real, right? It's many, many years since the 60s. Attachment theorists keep doing the same research over and over again and putting out the statistics to show this is real, right? And because we have such a long period since this attachment research started, we now have what we call longitudinal attachment studies, which are more than 20 years long, where we can look at a child studied in an attachment study more than 20 years ago and say that those children who were securely attached more than 20 years ago are still securely attached now. And those children who were insecurely attached then are 20 years later insecurely attached and have developed mental health issues. So we have evidence that this is real, that emotional security, meaning trusting that your primary attachment object is there for you from moment to moment to help you with your, what we call regulate your emotions, keeping them from going too high or too low and helping you through distress, provides you with a kind of security that says the world is a safe place. I can deal with the adversity that comes my way. That is what attachment theory is. Now, some people would say, well, that sounds a whole lot like spoiling, right? I mean, aren't we supposed to create independent children, right? And, you know, shouldn't we try to encourage, shouldn't we push them out into the world as quickly as possible? So I know it is counter to our culture, which is very, very obsessed with self-sufficiency and independence at a very young age. So what we say is that to achieve that level of self-sufficiency and independence, you need to first provide the foundation 
of dependency and the ability to depend on your attachment object. So that provides the foundation so that child can, in an organic way, go out into the world and feel secure and deal with the adversity that comes their way. Now, if you promote or push a child to be too self-sufficient too early before they're ready, you promote a defense, which is like a defensive independence. You promote narcissistic defenses, which is the best way I can describe it is the hard candy coating around an empty inside, right? So there isn't an organic building of a personality and security. You create defenses, which are the baby basically says, well, I don't have anybody to depend on, so I guess I got to depend on myself. But they never develop that internal sense of security, which makes them more vulnerable and fragile to breaking down later. It's the difference between if you ever bit into a really hard chocolate that's like hard on the inside, like almost breaks your tooth. That's what you want for an ego. You want an ego to be like, a chocolate that's filled in on the inside, not the ones that have like the cherry with the gooey stuff inside where you, you know, it all comes pouring out. That's what we're creating. We're creating defensively independent, narcissistic, not in a healthy narcissistic way, children. Narcissistic defenses are, I seem wonderful. I seem great, but inside I'm empty. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people would accuse American parents of kind of overparenting, right? Where, you know, there's this thing we call intensive parenting, which we do with our teenagers, right, and our adolescents. And I think part of the message of both books is that independence later in life is encouraged by more attention earlier in life, right? Yes. And less attention earlier in life means that, you know, you're going to spend more, you're going to have to do more later. So we get it both parts wrong, it seems. Right? We're getting the early childhood part wrong, and then we get the later adolescent part wrong to some degree. I want to throw in something that even makes it more nuanced and complicated because we all want to reduce these things to very overly simplified paradigms, right? But the reality is that it, there's nuance to this, which is I think parents who are very anxious in their parenting think that they are very attentive, right? It's a little like coffee. You know, if you drink a little coffee, it gives you that kind of like, oh, I drank coffee and I feel good and I can get through my afternoon. But if you drink six cups of coffee, you actually get tired, right? So the idea that a good deal of real attention to a child is very good for their development. But if we're anxious, which is that we project into them our fears, then we end up creating more vulnerable children, if that makes sense. So I think a lot gets confused and oversimplified. So people think, oh, but I was home with my children and I was hovering around them. And so think of what I talked about earlier. That process of emotional refueling where children come back and get reinforced like touchstone and then go back out, that assumes a parent can let their child explore. That assumes a parent can let go and so the parents that you're talking about are never letting go. <laughs> they're so frightened that they're holding on. So the child never really does get to practice, right? Exploration never gets to fail and never gets to fall down. And, you know, when my kids were little, my husband said, wouldn't it be great if we could develop a helmet for little kids when they're starting to walk? So when they fall down, they never hurt their head. And I said, well, you know what? 
sounds good, but the truth is that's how we learn to become stable. We do hurt ourselves. We do fall down. We go, ooh, that hurt. I got to walk more slowly. I shouldn't run. That's sort of how we learn. So we can't protect our children from everything, but that shouldn't be confused with being attentive. Now, I think in the book, you describe how attachment styles are inherited, right? In other words, the attachment style that we develop as infants is then translated onto the next generation. And I was wondering if you could describe the extent to which this is epigenetic. I mean, you know, which would make it more of a challenge to kind of redress later in life, right? Well, we call it generational expression. And we have generational expression of a lot of things. And just to define epigenetics is a combination of our genetics and the environment, right? So that the environment turns on certain things that are genetic sort of proclivity. For instance, if you're born with this sensitivity to stress, and then you are exposed to a lot of stress, a lot of loss, a lot of abuse, a lot of neglect, a lot of absence from a parent, you know, early separation, all those things combined with that gene for sensitivity to stress turn on the mental illness, right? So that's what epigenetics is. So what we know is that we have generational expression of many things. One of those things is our style of communication with our children, our level of attachment to our children, our attachment styles with our children. And as you know from the book, there's a whole chapter in the book that summarizes all this attachment research. So I I sort of say it's like the cheat sheet of all the attachment research. I have a chapter on attachment. You can read that and you kind of get the gist of the whole thing. But there's one secure attachment style. And then there are three, as far as we've found so far, three insecure attachment styles. We have the avoidant attachment style, which means when the mother comes home from a long day of being away from a very young baby, that baby turns away and says, hmm, you've been away all day. You haven't been here for me. I'm not looking at you. I don't need you. It's that defensive independence that I talked about. And that we know is most closely connected to depression later on and the inability to connect deeply with other people. And that is passed on to the next generation, right? So that baby is more likely to grow up and have an avoidant attachment style with their relationships and with their children. Another kind of attachment insecurity is ambivalent, which is the mother comes home and the baby clings and cries and won't let go of the mother and is terrified the mother's going to leave again. And that's most closely related to anxiety later on. And those babies grow up to become more anxious and also more anxious parents. And then the third and the hardest to treat and the most devastating in terms of mental illness is something called disorganized attachment insecurity, which is when a baby has no strategy. So I suppose you could say avoidant and ambivalent are strategies, right? If a baby says, I'm always going to turn away from my mother and I'm going to just be on my own, that's a strategy. So it's something, right? But these are babies who have no strategy, so they sort of cycle between strategies, and they will turn away and then cling and then slap the mother and then turn away, and they have no strategy. And these babies are more closely associated with borderline personality disorder later on, and those mothers grow up to be more borderline with their babies. So yes, this is generational expression of these attachment styles. The good news is that this is not fixed. You know, I have a colleague named Alan Shore who wrote a wonderful book 
called The Science and the Art of Psychotherapy and talked about all of the brain research, all the neuroscience research, all that we are now able to see through brain scans of how talk therapy, not CBT therapy, not behavioral therapy, but real feelings-oriented psychodynamic talk therapy can actually change the architecture of the right brain. And drugs won't do that. Drugs won't do that. CBT therapy won't do that. Only psychotherapy, where you're really exploring early hurts and early pain and resolving early conflicts. And that helps you to move forward. Because you could say that our early hurts and our early losses leave a scratch on the record for us. Remember when we all had records and CDs and it would scratch and it would keep skipping back? I mean, I don't know if anybody has those anymore, but they're trendy again to have records. But it's like having a scratch in the record where our psyches keep going back to the old hurt. Until we're able to resolve that hurt, we can't move forward. Now, I think you describe in the books situations where you were dealing with troubled children. And after digging deeper, you discovered that the troubles originated with the parents. And it was really, you know, the parents that needed to go through some kind of therapy in order to help the children. But look, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so if as parents, we want to make sure that our children don't need all of this help later in life, what do we do? I mean, you talk about being present, but what does being present actually mean? I mean, a lot of people think babies are boring, right? You know, they're just sitting there and they want some milk and then they sleep and then they cry and they don't seem particularly interesting to some parents. Have parents always viewed their children that way or does that reflect something about the culture and what we think is interesting? Does it reflect sort of a, an absence of curiosity or an absence of desire to engage in this communal teaching and learning process? Well, when adults who are not in my field, because, you know, I mean, there's certain fields where people just are fascinated with babies. I went into this field because I'm fascinated with babies. But if you're not in this field, the idea of being fascinated with some stranger's baby is anti-instinctual. I mean, you know, you might like babies, but you're not going to be fascinated with somebody else's baby. It's just, but the concept of not being fascinated by your own baby is a sign of, you know, I wrote an article for the Washington Post. I think it was for the Washington Post or Time, something. I think it was the Washington Post about how boredom with your own baby is a sign of postpartum depression. And it's an undiagnosed sign of postpartum depression. It's anti-instinctual. Couldn't it just mean you have a phone, right? No, no. Well, I mean, if you're obsessed with your phone can also be a sign of depression. But the concept is to not be fascinated with your own baby is some deep disconnect and probably means that no one was fascinated with you. Meaning our ability to be fascinated with our own babies is contingent on our mothers finding us fascinating and interesting. If we weren't interesting to them, if we were boring, and there's the generational expression. Michael Meany, he's a researcher, famous researcher, animal researcher who did research on attachment in animals found that if it was rats, if they were not licked and groomed by their mothers, then they didn't grow up to be able to lick and groom their babies. So if you weren't licked and groomed, let's say, you know, the equivalent of being licked and groomed as a human is for your mother to be fascinated with you. 
to look at you as if you're the most fascinating and your father to look at you as if, you know, I mean, and babies are fascinating. Everything they do is there are millions of synapses every moment in that baby's life that are happening. When that baby picks up a toy, you can see the brain development going on if you know what to look for, right? Years ago, I'm going to piss a lot of people off saying this, but, you know, a friend said, well, I don't know if I like baseball versus basketball because baseball is like watching the grass grow. But I love baseball. <laughs> you know, it's, I do like watching the grass grow. It's the ability to look for subtlety and nuance and not have to see people trotting down the court and every minute doing something, you know, important and fast. And so when you're not fascinated with your own baby, it's generally a sign that no one could sit with you and was fascinated with your development and with who you are. But couldn't it also be a product of the environment in the sense if one has pressures around work, one has distractions, one is thinking about other things, then, you know, the baby can be a nuisance, right? So one of the things that attachment theory talks about is about the fact that human beings are an accumulation, we are from birth, an accumulation of experiences and then learning moments or defenses that develop one after another. We're sort of an accumulation of defenses, if you will. So the word defenses is not necessarily a bad thing. We develop defenses, healthy defenses, to protect us from stress, to protect us from distraction. You know, meditation teaches a weary population of people that have grown up in modernity who don't have healthy defenses to create healthy defenses. The Buddhists say when you're worried, you want to imagine your worries like clouds in the sky passing by and let them pass. Basically, they're saying you have to have good defenses. So what you're saying is that we're raising generations of vulnerable adults who don't have healthy defenses, who are overwhelmed by their environments and can't sit with their babies and find them fascinating. I mean, you're just making a good argument for exactly what I'm saying, which is, you know, the last 60 years have really done us in. You also mentioned that Americans have a tendency to be, you know, very, very exuberant around their children and that they view kind of happiness as the most desirable emotion in their children. And I think you argue that, well, you know, emotional development is a very complex thing and that you have to be capable of empathizing with a wider range of emotions that your children might be going through. And it's not happiness, it's excitability. So I think we're addicted to Oh, I hate to use, I love basketball. We're addicted to that kind of fast moving, you know, we're addicted to excitability. So it's, it's not me. Again, I just borrow a lot of research. There's a researcher named Judy Mesman who focuses on going all around the world and looking at mothering behaviors to see if they're variable based on culture or universal. And what she found is that mothering behaviors are universal. But what she did find is that in the West, particularly in America, but in the West, more in America. She said she's never seen a culture like the American culture where people literally need to overstimulate their babies at all times. And mothers need to be reassured, and fathers too, that their babies love them by being excitable. So it's this, 
right? So, you know, blah, 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 blah. well, you know, coming home and needing to, whereas if you even go to Europe and you watch mothers with babies, because she's from Holland, she said mothers can be content with babies. So it depends on what you mean by happiness, because happiness for me is sort of contentment. It's not necessarily, we all have excitable moments, but we don't want to be in a constantly excitable state because that leads to a lot of the psychological and emotional problems adults have, right? I mean, this is what where boredom comes from. This is where, you know, I can't be off my phone. This is where all the addiction to sensory stimulation comes from. So the ability to be quiet with a baby and sit on the floor and watch a baby and hand them a toy and sit back and just appreciate sort of what you're observing, that is really lost, and she said, on Americans in particular. Well, another thing I think Americans are now very interested in is cognitive development and, you know, baby Einstein, right? Right. Let's get them started on STEM, you know, when they're two. Does cognitive development, if you overemphasize cognitive development, does that come at the expense of other, say, uh, you know, emotional development? Well, think of overstimulating the left brain as being as bad too early as overstimulating the right brain, right? It's kind of the same thing. I use the analogy in the book of, or the metaphor of socks and shoes, that when we, for the first three years, focus on the social, emotional, or right brain development of a child meaning the relationships, the attachment security, play, you know, free play, creativity. When we focus on these things in the first three years, it's like putting your socks on first. So then it prepares you to be able to learn things cognitively with your left brain later on, reading, writing, and arithmetic. If we force a child too early to focus on the left brain, you know, flashcards and, you know, teaching them to do sign language and <laughs> I mean, God knows what people are obsessed with. My child has to learn these things under the age of two because then they won't go to Harvard if they, you know, and what they end up doing is they end up putting the shoes on before the socks is the best way I can describe it. And what happens is it backfires because to be able to sustainably learn with your left brain, you need to be able to tolerate frustration because learning involves frustration. And frustration tolerance is emotional regulation that comes from the right brain. So all of that emotional security, all that emotional regulation lays down the foundation. So a human being can tolerate frustration and not get bored so easily and be able to stick with things and not get distracted and then be able to learn with the left brain. So what we are doing is we're focusing too early on the left brain development and we're forcing kids into school. It's called school, which it isn't really school. I mean, it used to be in my generation, I'm almost 60, and I went to nursery school, we called it back then, for one year before I was five and I went to kindergarten. And nursery school was three days a week, two hours a day, where it was just play, 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 play. And I was four. And then kindergarten was five days a week, nine to 12. So you can see how it's changed because now we force children into preschool. And now all these cities and states are like, oh, yes, preschool, let's get them in the earlier. The you know, And what we're doing is it's basically daycare. 
They need to be home with a primary attachment figure. They're not really playing with one another. They're doing parallel play. And you're putting them in these overstimulating environments that are left brain oriented environments. They are trying to teach these kids to sit in circle time and to read books and to learn their letters. And what it's doing is it's really, excuse me, it's really, you know, I I won't use a curse, but it's really screwing up their brains because it's, again, putting their shoes on before their socks. And it's creating very emotionally and mentally vulnerable kids. And so pushing them out into this social environment too early will make it more difficult for them to be successful in a social environment later. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? And cognitively, yeah. Think of it like a slow build, you know. One's personality should be a very slow, organic build. Well, but this sounds like putting an awful burden on primary caregivers now. If a primary caregiver has to spend, you know, not six weeks, not eight weeks, but perhaps even three years focused primarily on their child. I mean, a lot of people say that Americans spend too much time on caregiving now. The data seems to suggest that parents are spending even more time than they did, you know, and I think maybe they're focusing on later life. I know when I was a kid in the seventies, you know, I got a ton of attention when I was young and then afterwards very little when I was older, uh, I was just set off to play. So I think, you know, when people talk about Americans doing too much caregiving, they're really failing to disaggregate the early years from the later years, right? Well, but you just said it. So if we were to do less later and more earlier, it may not increase the total amount of time doing caregiving. It would just concentrate it in the periods in which it has the biggest impact. In most parts of the world, they have paid maternity leave. I mean, the reason I wrote the first book, which seemed to have gotten lost in everything and all the press and, you know, that I kept saying, but we need a paid maternity because people would say, oh, isn't this elitist and oh, the economy and we need to make money and middle class families, you know, I'm like, are you not listening? We all need a paid maternity leave. We all need to have not family leave, which is just... I don't know, a few weeks off without pay or at the will of your individual companies, we all need paid maternity leave and not three months because at three months, babies are just waking up. I mean, I was talking to my husband about Estonia the other day. Estonia offers three years of full paid maternity leave. So you'd say babies are happiest in Estonia. Estonia is a tiny little country, but other countries around the world, and even in Sweden, which I have some issues with, and I won't go into it unless you want to have me back and I can talk to you about their problems, but they offer at least 14 months paid maternity leave, which now they're forcing fathers to take paternity leave. And again, they have issues, but paid parental leave, right? So we're really a very uncivilized country because what matters most to us is not our children. What matters most to us is the economy. What matters most to us is that we get more people out into the workplace faster. And so the idea that we would be encouraging people to slow down, take time to raise their own children, take time to be those secure parents for their children, maybe work part-time in those years if they need to earn extra money, offering parents opportunities to work part-time so they can spend more time being secure attachment figures for their children. Because as I say in the book, more is more, right? No, we don't do that because that's not good for the economy. 
Well, so a lot of people would say, well, if you're going to have this for mothers, you have to also have it for fathers. Could you talk a bit about maybe the differences between mothers and fathers? Why can't we just have fathers do this, right? Why can't we have a more equal division of childcare and of external work? Well, listen, according to research, again, there's a whole chapter on that in my book, too. If you're more interested in the research about it, you could look at that. But fathers and mothers do not nurture exactly in the same way. And it's really based on our biology because hormones influence our nurturing behaviors. And that's all mammals, mind you. We're just animals. We're just mammals. And so our hormones influence our nurturing behavior. So we don't all nurture the same way. We produce different hormones as men and women. And those hormones have a different impact. Even the same hormone has a different impact on behavior in men and women. So men and women both produce oxytocin. It's called the love hormone. It's a neurotransmitter that makes mothers, when they give birth, when they breastfeed, when they nurture their young, it makes them more sensitive empathic nurturers, meaning makes them very hyper-tuned into a baby's distress. That same hormone of oxytocin is produced to a lesser degree in fathers because they don't give birth, they don't breastfeed, <laughs> but they can nurture. And when they nurture, they can produce oxytocin. It comes from a different part of the brain than in mothers. But when they do produce oxytocin, it makes them more tactile, physical, stimulating love objects, meaning tickling babies, throwing them up in the air, encouraging resilience, running around, physical, very physical. It doesn't make fathers more sensitive, empathic nurturers. There was a study out of England that showed that when fathers and mothers are sleeping and the baby cries in the middle of the night, the father can sleep right through the cries, but the mother wakes up. But when the leaves are rustling outside the window, the fathers wake up and the mothers sleep through that. Because we're wired differently. Fathers have a hormone called vasopressin in great quantities, which is called the protective aggressive hormone. Again, mothers produce that too to a lesser degree. But fathers were the protector against predators, right? So as mammals, the fathers were physically bigger, they were stronger, they could protect against predators, so the mother could nurture, right? In most mammalian species, that's the way it goes. So the idea that after like thousands of years of evolution, we should just flip it around because of 60 years of social changes. I mean, it just ain't happening. It doesn't mean that fathers can't be made aware of this and can't be taught to be sensitive, empathic nurturers. You know, when fathers come into my office and they're very insensitive to their children's distress, they're like, you know, ah, he's okay. He's toughing him up and he's, ah, he scratched his knee. You see the difference in the behaviors that a mother, the baby falls down in the playground and the mother goes over and says, oh, honey, are you okay? Let me see your knee. I'll kiss it and I'll give you a hug. That's what we call sensitive empathic nurturing. It sort of regulates distress, right? Soothing and comforting. Whereas the father will, you know, go, oh, you're okay. Get up. You know, you're okay. Go back to play. It's fine. You'll be fine. So fathers and mothers don't nurture the same way with very young children. Again, when you have a father who is, quote unquote, the father, the stay-at-home parent, it's important that father know with a very young child, he's got to be more of a mother 
than a father. Now, there's a section in the first book where you bristle at being accused of being anti-feminist. And you say, you know, that being child-centric does not mean anti-feminist. Do you think there's a need for maybe a new type of feminism that emphasizes more the distinctive role of women in child-rearing? I have a t-shirt from an organization called Big Ocean Women, which I love, which is an organization which organizes mothers around the globe in groups so they can form support groups, basically. And it's a t-shirt that says, they coined the phrase, not me, maternal feminism. So the idea that my book was meant to say that women can't work, I mean, that's just, that was baloney. I mean, that's not what the book says at all. It says you need to, if you're going to have children and you want them to be mentally healthy, you need to prioritize them in the early years. And that means both physically and emotionally. So if we're all going to live till 120, like Moses, you know, with all the medical advances, then you'd say sacrificing a few years so we're not working like intensely and climbing the ladder and having to be, you know, that is a very small sacrifice for many years of mental health in your children, right? So, yeah, the idea that feminism provided women with choice. Now, that choice wasn't I can do what the hell I want to anyone that I want to do it to. That's narcissism. That's not feminism. If you say, I want to be a corporate executive, I want to work 14 hours a day, I don't want to take a break, then it's your choice not to have children. And maybe that's a better choice. And I have no judgment. I actually admire women and men who say, I don't want to have children. I got a lot of flack from that too, from the right, because they all want everybody to have children and whatever. I'm like, if someone is not equipped to sacrifice what they need to, if they don't get joy out of relationships, they shouldn't have children. And that's not, again, an accusation. It's not a judgment. It's actually an admiration on my part. I'm like, you have to know yourself well enough to know. But if you have children, then you have to be able to care for them, not just have them and have someone else care for them. Well, I I think you said at some point in the book, you said all moms are working moms, right? Yeah. And do we need to kind of rethink what we mean when we say work, right? I mean, it seems like when we define work, we mean paid work out of the household, right? But being a mom is a lot of work, right? A lot of work, much more work than going to work, which is why some mothers, you know, they're like, oh, I can't wait to go back to the office, you know? Because when you're at the office, you don't realize it, but you can zone out. You can look on your computer at what you're going to eat for dinner and household items you want to buy and, you know, vacations you want to take. And people don't realize it, but when they're at work, they have a lot of space. You know, I have mothers who are like, oh, I can't wait to go back to work and leave this baby because I have to be with this baby. I'm like, yeah, that's what having a baby is. It's being with that baby. It's giving up a lot of your personal space, not all of it. You know, we should never raise children in a vacuum by ourselves without support. You know, we should have our spouses support us. We should have extended family to support us. If we don't, we need to hire babysitters, even if it's a poor woman having a next door neighbor who you say, I can't afford to pay a babysitter, but if you watch my baby for an hour so I can space out, I'll watch your baby for an hour so you can space out. Well, that's the concept of alloparenting, right? Which I've done a podcast on that. So just last question, what can we do if we're not mothers to help mothers so that they can do their job better? I mean, there's both 
physical things that we can do, but also do they need emotional support from the rest of us? Do they need more recognition from the rest of us? They do. I can't tell you the number of people that email me after reading my book and say, your book changed my life. And it changed my life because you're the only person in my life. And this is really sad, actually. You're the only person in my life, and I'm not in their lives. I'm an author who wrote a book. I'm an analyst, but I'm not their analyst. You're the only person who's ever supported me and acknowledged what I do and reassured me that what I'm doing is valuable. And I email every single person back who emails me. I don't care, you know, and even if it's a comment to say, I'm happy to support you and I'm sad that other people aren't supporting you in your life. So there's your answer. Wow. That's sad. Thank you so much for joining me. The older book is called Being There, which I really enjoyed. It's called Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And I think mothers and fathers and non-mothers, non-fathers should read this book. Also, this one called Chicken Little. The sky isn't falling. Raising resilient adolescents in the new age of anxiety. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.